Welcome to Meadowbrook Church, leading people into the Christ-centered life. For more information about who we are, find us online at www.meadowbrook.ca. We're going to be reading from James chapter 2 today. You can meet me there in James chapter 2. If you need a Bible, there's a Bible on the pew in front of you. It's page 1217 in that Bible. We started a new series last week that we're, we just simply called Roots, and we are looking at uh, our roots as an Anabaptist church. And if you're not sure what that word means, then this is the series where you're going to learn, because uh, we are an Anabaptist church. We are specifically a Mennonite Brethren church. That is our denomination. But we are part of a bigger movement within the Church of Jesus Christ called Anabaptism. And we're going to take the next number of weeks uh, leading us up to the summer just to explore some of that and some of the history of that. But every branch of the church just uh, chooses to emphasize things a bit of a different way. And so there's the Catholic branch, and there's the Protestant branch, and there's the Orthodox branch, and we're the Anabaptist branch, and we're not saying that we're right and everybody else is wrong, but this is just who we are. And every branch has brought great blessing to the body of Christ in different ways. Every branch has its challenges, including Anabaptism, which we'll explore a little bit. But this is just who we are, and we know we've had lots of people come to the church who don't come from this stream. They come from uh, Protestant streams, uh, a lot of you. And so we just wanted to take some time to unpack what it means uh, to be an Anabaptist church and some of that emphasis. I want to show you a video uh, just to get you ready as we get ready to jump in today. Uh, this is a video on Mother's Day. It felt appropriate. Uh, we're going to hear some wisdom from some moms uh, from the movies. Take a look. So some good wisdom from movie moms, and uh, felt appropriate on Mother's Day to have something like that. And it's a good picture, a bit of where we're going today, because uh, we know, sadly, it's not universal, but in its best form, uh, motherhood is what makes us who we are in the best possible way, because our moms teach us and they guide us and they give us wisdom and they instruct us and they show us the way that we should go and they help us discover who we are and what our gifts are and mom our moms are there to do this for us and it's a lot like a very churchy word that we throw around a lot called discipleship uh, and sometimes with churchy words that we throw around a lot we kind of forget where I had somebody within the last couple of months come to me and say I actually don't really know what discipleship means I've been coming to church for 30 years uh, and I've heard that word a lot but it's never really uh, been made clear and we don't always uh, define it that clearly and it can mean different things to different people but when we're talking about discipleship uh, our moms are a good picture of that because they we follow after their example we follow after their teaching we follow their guidance they show us the way to go in life and when we we talk about discipleship that is what we are talking about except with Jesus not your mom but Jesus that Jesus teaches us and Jesus guides us and we follow after Jesus and we follow after his example and he shows us the way we should go in life when we talk about discipleship in the church context we are really asking the question how are we following after the teachings and example of Jesus and then one step beyond that how is that changing us more and more so that we look like Jesus as we do it so discipleship sometimes gets called spiritual formation, and, and different churches call it different things. But when we talk about discipleship, that's what we're talking about. How are we following after Jesus? How well are we doing at that, and what does that look like for us? And we do that because as Christ followers, we have looked at the life of Jesus, for those of us who have made this choice, and we have read the teachings of Jesus, and we have seen the examples of Jesus, and we have said, I want to live like that because that is the best possible way to live. 
When we look at the teachings and example of Jesus, there has never been anyone who's walked this earth who has been more loving, who has been more gracious, who has been more focused on other people, who has been more God-centered and other-centered, who has been more focused on doing what is right and doing what is good. And so we have looked at that and said, that is the way to be. That if I'm going to be a Christ follower, I'm actually going to follow Christ. Does that make sense? Profound. To call myself a Christ follower is to say I'm going to follow in the way of Christ. I'm going to follow his teachings and follow his example. Now, nobody does this perfectly. Nobody has figured this out. Uh, We understand we are still sinners and we are still uh, broken and we still are in process of being healed and, and being made more holy. And so no one is doing this perfectly. But we would say as followers of Christ, we are centering our lives on Christ and on following his example. And Anabaptists are certainly not the only ones to have said that or the only ones who believe that, but this has always been a crucial major emphasis point for the Anabaptist movement. They would actually say it's not just about discipleship, it is about radical discipleship. That if we are going to claim to be Christian, then our lives need to look like Christ. And they need to be modeled after the teachings of Christ. And they need to be seeking to follow the example of Christ. And so last week, if you missed it, you can hear it online or on our podcast. We talked about some of the history uh, of where Anabaptism came from. And it came in the 1500s when there was really just one church, the Roman Catholic Church. And the Roman Catholic Church had gotten into all sorts of corruption and different things. So the Protestant movement begins uh, in protest of some of these corruptions and some of these abuses. And the Protestant movement becomes its own thing. And then Anabaptism kind of springs off of the Protestant movement because the Protestant movement did a lot of incredible incredible things that blessed the body of Christ tremendously. And the Anabaptists said, we agree with all of it, and we actually just want to take it kind of one step further when it comes to Jesus. And so Anabaptism, again, we're not claiming that it's right and the others are wrong. If you look at church history, uh, the Catholic Church has blessed the body of Christ tremendously and continues to in lots of different ways. But like any group, like any family throughout its history, it's got high points and it's got low points. It's got tremendous things that it's done. It's got some embarrassing moments. The Protestant movement is the same and I grew up in the Protestant movement in the Pentecostal church and they've blessed the body of Christ tremendously they have and continue to do all sorts of amazing things around the world and they have some dark spots in their history as well and Anabaptism has been a blessing and continues to be a blessing but it also has some problems nothing is perfect because we are not perfect it's been said if your church was perfect you wouldn't be allowed to go there Uh, because we are all just imperfect people, and imperfect people make imperfect churches, which make imperfect movements and branches of the church. We are all doing the best we can to know and understand Jesus and follow after him. And because we're all imperfect, we can have a lot of grace and patience for each other's imperfections, ideally. Christians don't always do that so well, if you read church history at all. But we can be patient and gracious with each other because we're all in the same boat. Anabaptism, we talked about this last week. The word itself literally means the rebaptizers or the rebaptized. And one of the big points of contention in the 1500s was the Catholic Church would baptize babies as infants. And then when the Protestant movement began, for a long time, they kept up the practice of baptizing babies as infants. Uh, and then some of them began to lose that over time. And the Anabaptists looked at that and said, well, we just don't see that in the Bible anywhere. In the Bible, when we see baptism, it's always a choice that somebody makes. They don't, their parents don't do it to them. It's they've chosen to follow Jesus, and baptism becomes the sign of that. And so as the Anabaptists read their Bible, they said, we can't 
hold to infant baptism. And so they said, well, we all got baptized as kids at the time in the Catholic Church, but now we need to get baptized again. We need to have a, a real baptism, a biblical baptism. And so they went and they got baptized again as adults, and they got sort of nicknamed the rebaptizers by their critics, and that was the name that stuck to the whole movement. But it wasn't just about uh, we don't see infant baptism in the Bible. That was a big part of it. But the other part, which is the heart of where we're getting at today, is the Anabaptist said, just because you're baptized, that doesn't make you a Christian. That alone does not make you a Christian. And that was the mentality at the time. We will baptize babies as infants, and then they'll be Christians for life. They'll be set. And the Anabaptists said, there's got to be more to it than that, because we know people who were baptized as babies who then go to live horrible, sinful lives where they never acknowledge Jesus in any way. There's nothing about their life that is Christian. And so they went to their Bible, and they said, yeah, it's not baptism alone that makes you a Christian. That's not it. Uh, you have to choose to follow Jesus. And then you're baptized as a symbol of that choice that you've made. And so that was a big part of where this happened as well. So the, the heart of the question is, what makes you a Christian? Why do you get to call yourself a Christian? Let's look at our text today. We're in James chapter 2, and we're starting in verse 14. James writes, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, and not by faith alone. So... This is actually one of the trickiest passages in the New Testament, and I've been nervous about it all week, to be honest with you, because it's, uh, it's a wrestling match a little bit. It's problematic. Martin Luther was one of the Protestant reformers, uh, one of the spearheaders of the whole movement, and he hated that passage so much that he said, the book of James needs to be ripped out of the Bible. He said the early church fathers got it wrong when they were deciding which book should be in the scripture. He said that book needs to be out of there because Martin Luther really loved what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, which is kind of the heart of the gospel. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And so a big part of the Protestant movement that broke off from the Catholic Church was the Catholics said, you earn your way into heaven by your good works. And the Protestants read passages like this and many others like it in the New Testament that said, no, we're not saved by what we do. We're not saved by the good works, the good deeds, the good actions that we do. Those we need to do, but we're not saved because of that. By God's grace and our faith, we are saved. We put our trust in his grace and his goodness. We can't save ourselves we need a savior to save us and jesus did it for us so this is the gospel that that gets recaptured in the protestant reformation it had been lost 
from church theology for so long. And so the Protestants said we're saved by grace through faith. And then James comes along and says, yeah, not totally, though, because your works are still involved in this. And it sounds like they go against each other, right? Paul writes, grace through faith, no works. James says, yeah, faith and works together. And if we believe that God's word is one and we believe that it doesn't contradict itself, then we got to wrestle with these things and figure out a way to bring them together. So when we're talking about the word works or the word deeds that we see in these passages, what we're talking about basically is anything good that we do. Uh, good things, good things that we do for other people, good things that we do to please God, good things that we do to obey God's word, good things that we do to be faithful to him and to please him. These are the works and the deeds that James and Paul are writing about. And a couple of verses after uh, these verses here in Ephesians 2, Paul writes, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And so the, the gospel sort of got, again, recaptured this idea that we're saved by his grace. He saves us. We don't save ourselves. We don't bring our own actions to the table. We have been saved by an act of God. And so by his grace, we put our faith, our trust in his grace, and that's the ticket to heaven. This is the gospel. And yet James is still in there. We can't just ignore that. And so let's take a look at what James is getting at as we go through this passage today. First of all, if James isn't there, uh, we can fall into a very, very lazy, selfish uh, Christianity. If James isn't there, if it's just fo the focus is faith on its own, uh, faith on its own then just can become meaningless good intentions. If it's just about faith and nothing else, we just have to trust Jesus and that's it then it can just become meaningless, right? I can live my life however I want as long as I believe the right things and that's all that God is looking for and that doesn't even really make sense, right? If I say I believe in Jesus but I keep robbing banks and I keep killing people, that's not really what a Christ follower looks like, right? And so it can't just be about believing the right things. It's, it can't just be about that. James takes it a step further. Verse 15 through 17, it says, Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. And James just gives us a really easy-to-understand illustration that if I say I'm a compassionate person, I'm a good person, I love people, and yet if I run into a brother or sister who's in desperate need, and my reaction is, wow, that sucks for you. Well, God bless you. Good luck. If that's all I do, then you would be very right in questioning how compassionate I actually am, right? Chris says he's compassionate, but when this opportunity to show compassion shows up, Chris was not there at all. He was self-centered and detached. Like, you would be absolutely right in saying, yeah, I don't think that compassion is real. He says he's compassionate, but his actions are not backing up that compassion. If I say I love people, but I don't actually demonstrate that love, you are right in saying, why do you think you're loving exactly? What is it about you that thinks you are a, a loving person? And so our actions, if they don't back up what we say, and if they don't back up what we say we believe, then we're right to question the sincerity 
of those beliefs. This is what James is getting at. And so when the Protestant movement starts, uh, they so beautifully recapture uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we're saved because of him, and we're saved because of what he's done for us. And Jesus is to be worshipped as Lord. And so they, they sort of recapture the worship, worship of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus and the cross of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. They recapture these things as so central to the Christian walk, and we're so indebted to them for doing that. And again, the Anabaptists said, we agree with everything you say, and the only additional emphasis we would put on it is not just believe in Jesus, not just trust Jesus, not just worship Jesus, but follow Jesus as one of the most important things we do as followers of Jesus. That we actually follow his teachings and follow his example. And it's not that the Protestants didn't believe that, but the Anabaptists just really emphasized that. The Protestants would emphasize that and also follow Paul's example and David's example and all the different people in Scripture. And the Anabaptists said, we honor them all and we can learn from them all, but Jesus is the most important. Jesus is where the central uh, point should be. And so the Protestant Reformation uh, is starting and the Anabaptists are agreeing with all of it and then just saying there's just one little thing that we would add beyond that uh, just to kind of partner with what you guys are doing. And that is not always easy because the teachings of Jesus are not always easy. And so it's easy when you're mad at someone to stay mad, and it's easy when someone hurts you to pick up your sword and hurt them back. And if you wanted to find stories of that in the Bible, you could, right? Here's a story of King David getting revenge on his enemies. Therefore, I can get revenge on my enemies. This was the common thought in the 1500s. And what the Anabaptists did was say, okay, David's example is wonderful. That is an inspired part of God's word. But Jesus is actually more important than David. And so when David goes and gets revenge on his enemies, Jesus actually says, love your enemies, forgive your enemies, put away your sword, turn the other cheek, and we're going to go with Jesus on this. And that's harder in some ways because it's much more natural to get revenge. I think forgiveness is one of the toughest things that Jesus calls us to do. And if you've ever been wounded by somebody, you know that, right? It is not always easy to let it go. And yet Jesus says, you know what? If there's revenge that needs to happen, you let God deal with that. You forgive, you love, you bless, you move on with your life. And so the teachings of Jesus are not always easy. And the Anabaptists have, have acknowledged that and said, nonetheless, they are the, the center point of what it means to be a Christ follower. Because we're not ultimately called to be followers of David or followers of Paul. We honor them, but we are followers of Jesus. David and Paul are helpful in how they help us follow Jesus because Jesus is Lord. And we are following after the example of Jesus as followers of Christ. And so if I am to say I am a loving husband, I love my wife more than anything, my wife is the most important thing in the world to me, if I say that, and maybe even think that about myself, but at the same time, if I belittle her and tear her down and verbally abuse her and emotionally abuse her and treat her terribly, you would be very right to question how sincere my loving husband aspirations are, right? If I were to say, I love her more than anything, she means the world, you would say, yeah, your life is not backing up that thing that you just said, right? I, I question how sincere that love really is. Put another way, talk is cheap, right? Put another way, actions speak louder than words, that it's not just about what we say. It's not even just about what we think in ourselves. Actions speak louder than words. 
And this is where James is coming. This is what he is getting at. That if we say we believe, and even if we know in our heads that we believe, that our actions, that our lifestyles need to reflect that belief. If I say I follow Jesus, but nowhere in my life do I actually follow Jesus, you are right to question whether I am a Jesus follower. Right? And this is what James is getting at, is that faith and action go together. They're not two separate parts. They go together. And so if our actions don't back up our words, and if our actions don't back up our beliefs, we are right to question how sincere, how real those beliefs actually are. And so we would say, yeah, as followers of Jesus, we don't only believe in Jesus. We don't only trust Jesus. We don't only worship Jesus. We do all of those things, but we want to follow Jesus, that our life needs to reflect that faith and that trust and that worship by action as we follow after the teachings and the example of Jesus. So we would say, as we try to put James and Paul together, we're saved by faith, not by our works, but true faith is demonstrated by works. So it's not our works that save us, it's our trust in his grace that saves us. But when that trust in his grace is real, our lives are going to start to reflect that. Because if we really believe that Jesus is Lord, and if we really believe he went to the cross, and if we really believe that he rose from the dead, and if we really believe that he is God in the flesh, and if we really believe he is who he says he is, and he did what he said he did, and that he is Lord, if we really believe that, then our lives are going to reflect that belief. It's hard to say, I believe it fully, but nothing in my life is going to change. You question, well, then how much do you actually believe that? Because if Jesus is Lord, then what he tells me to do is really important. And again, not doing it perfectly, but it becomes important. It becomes central to our lives as we try to, to walk out this Christian walk. I love verse 19 so much. It's my favorite part. You believe there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Oh, good line. Good job, James. Even the demons believe in that. In other words, even the demons have some good theology. Even demons believe the right things. The demons believe that Jesus is Lord. The demons believe that he rose from the dead. James is saying that can't be enough on its own in itself because the demons are not going to heaven. They're not saved. And without James, what we can make the gospel into is, well, just check off certain boxes of things that you agree with, and then that's it. You're saved. You're saved if you can affirm these theological beliefs. That's it taken to its worst extreme. Just believe these. And if you want to remain a, you know, a murderer or a thief or whatever and live however you want and don't acknowledge Jesus in any way, that's fine. Just check off the boxes of these things that you say you believe, and you're good. And James is there, I think, to make sure we don't do that. Because even the demons could check off all the right boxes. They know who God is. They know who Jesus is. But the demons obviously are not saved. They're not going to heaven. So there has to be a bit more to it than that. And so um, are you confused yet? Are you with me still as we go through this? When we talk about being Christ-centered, we're talking about I am actually centering my life on Jesus. Not I trust him. I believe in him. I check off the boxes for sure. But I'm not just doing that. I'm living my life for him. I am following his way. I am following his example. Those are the works and the deeds that James is talking about. 
that if I truly believe, then my life is going to start to change. Not right away, not perfectly, work in progress our whole lives long, but my life is going to start to more and more look like Jesus as I seek to follow. And so for James, you know, he's, he's trying to just make clear, like what we've done is we've said faith equals belief. Just believe in the right things, and that's it. And what James is saying is, no, belief and action are two sides of the faith coin. It's not one or the other. They go together. Because if you really believe, action's going to follow. And if no action ever follows, then I question whether the belief is real or not. Because if you really believe it, if it's truly there inside you, then things in your life are going to start to shift as you follow after Jesus. And I know we have seasons of life, sometimes we feel very close to God, and sometimes not so much, and I'm not talking about that, but I'm talking about, you know, to the best of our ability, to the best of our understanding, we are centering our lives on Jesus. We are following after his example. Belief and action are two sides of the faith coin. They're not one or the other. They both work together. That belief spurs on action. And here's the thing, action also helps our belief. There's a picture of like a muddy field and a truck goes through it and carves out a rut. You know, the tires make a, a pathway through this muddy field. And if I want to go across that field, I can try and pave my own way on the muddy field, but it's a lot easier if I actually just get into the ruts that are there. And my pathway through the field is going to be easier. And this amazing thing happens as we follow after Jesus is that there are times where when we obey, it might not be uh, an easy thing, right? Forgive your brother. That's not an easy thing. There's times I'm praying, you know, to forgive people, and it's literally like, I don't want to do this at all, because they're jerks, but Jesus, you want me to do this, and I'm doing it. And it's not the best motivation, but it's a good start. And so the, we follow after the teachings of Jesus and his example, Jesus who hung on the cross, forgiving people in the moment who were murdering him at that time, saying, Father, forgive them not always easy. Sometimes it's just an act of obedience to do it. But as we do that more and more, these things that are sometimes just acts of obedience actually just become a part of who we are. We actually start to change when we start following after Jesus. We actually start to be transformed by his spirit as we take these steps of obedience. We actually start to get molded. And it's an amazing thing as we follow Jesus as well, because as I become more like Jesus, I don't lose my own personality. I don't lose the spark that makes me me. Uh, sometimes people accuse religion of just, oh, you're just trying to make everybody into cookie cutter. And that's not it at all. God is infinitely created. God has created like 20 million species of beetles, right? He doesn't like cookie cutter things. So we don't lose who we are, but what happens is the worst parts of who we are get weeded out, and the best parts of who we are get brought forward, and we start to become the version of ourselves that we were created to be originally before sin messed it all up. And we start to have more and more of the Christ-like qualities of his love and his grace and his patience and his forgiveness and his kindness. Those things start to become more and more a part of who we are. So as we follow Jesus, this transformation happens where we start to look more and more like Jesus as we do so. And so we don't want to just believe in Jesus and just trust in Jesus and just worship Jesus. We want to follow Jesus. We want to follow his example because if we do have faith in him, real faith leads to real action. And I think that's James' big sort of thesis statement point in this passage is that real faith leads to action. Right? Real trust in Jesus is going to lead to a change in our lives. 
And it's going to lead to us saying, I'm going to do it your way, Jesus, and not my way, more and more as we walk with him. And if there's no action whatsoever, then again, you would be right to say, well, how real, how sincere is that faith? So it's not like James is contradicting Paul. Paul says we're saved by grace through faith. He's not contradicting it, but James is just saying, but this is what faith is, just to be clear. This is actually the definition of faith. It's the trust and the belief that transforms us and it spurs us on to action. Because if we really believe this stuff, then we're actually going to start to live it out. Verse 22, he says, you see that Abraham's faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And so Abraham is called righteous, and Abraham is, told to, is, is called the father of faith, not because he sat in his tent his whole life and did nothing and just said, I believe certain things, right? His faith is made complete by those beliefs turning into action. His faith is completed there. So again, belief and action become two sides of the faith coin. And if we really trust this stuff, and if we really believe Jesus is Lord, and if we really believe that this is the right way to live, and we really believe in the beauty of the scriptures, then that's going to have an impact on our life in some way, if we really believe it. If we don't believe it, then it doesn't need to. But if we really believe it, it's going to affect us. 1 John 2.6 says, Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Anabaptists love this verse. It was so important to the argument of, you, you know, baptizing a baby and you're a Christian. And they said, no, 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 no. Whoever claims to live in him has to live as Jesus did. Not perfectly. And we expect perfection from nobody. But, but that is what we are going for. And the way John words it suggests that there are some who are claiming to be Christian that aren't. There are some who call themselves Christian and aren't because they're not trying to live the way that Jesus lives. And so if you want to call yourself a Christian, if you want to call yourself a Christ follower, then we're actually seeking to follow after Christ. Wherever you are at in this journey, we are seeking to follow after him more and more. And so everything we do in church, we have, you know, Sunday mornings, and we have Bible studies, and we have growth groups, and we have programs. And these are all incredible things. They are crucial to the Christian journey. But the point of them is not just the program in itself. Even reading the Bible, the point is not just to learn more about the Bible. All of these things are important only in so much as they help us to know Jesus better and to walk with him better. Otherwise, they just become a fun activity that we do. And so we are saying, I'm a follower of Christ. I want to follow Christ. Because as I read his words and as I look at his life, I really do affirm that this is the most beautiful teaching I've ever seen. Even Thomas Jefferson, he was a famous atheist. As far as we know, he never became a Christian. But he looked at Jesus' teaching and said, that's the most beautiful moral teaching I have ever seen of all the philosophers and everyone I've studied. That we look at the life of Jesus and, you know, we believe as followers of Christ that he is God come down in the flesh. And so it becomes really important what he says to us and really important how he lived before us. And so we say, that is how I want to live my life. And sinner that I am, broken that I am, that is how, that's what I'm shooting for. That's what I'm centering my life upon. And the beautiful story is that when I stumble, his grace is sufficient still. I don't get kicked out every time I screw up. His grace is sufficient for me to stumble and struggle my way through to the best of my understanding following after Jesus. 
So we are Mennonite brethren specifically, and there's a broader, much bigger family of just Mennonites and different branches of the Mennonite church. We are one of them called the Mennonite brethren. Uh, and all around town, you'll see different Mennonite churches, and they're from different uh, sides of that. But the Mennonites were just one big happy family for a long time. And they were persecuted like crazy. Uh, these Anabaptist Mennonites were persecuted, and so they would sort of flee the persecution. And then finally in the 1700s, uh, Russia actually said, Mennonites, come stay with us. Come settle here. We got lots of land. We got lots of farmland that we need taken care of. Uh, you know, we want the tax revenue. We want peaceful, law-abiding citizens who can come and do this, who are hardworking. And the Mennonites said, that's us. That's perfect. And so there was a good sort of mutually beneficial situation. The Mennonites went to the Ukraine, and they settled there, and they were peaceful, and they were hardworking. Uh, so Russia had some good, you know, decent citizens who worked hard and created lots of tax revenue. The Mennonites had a quiet place where they could be Mennonite and not be persecuted and not be attacked. And so this was where they settled for a couple hundred years, and then the Russian Revolution happened, and the communists uh, started persecuting again. So they all fled all around the world from there. But one of the things that happens while they're in Russia, they move there in the 1700s, and in the mid-1800s, there are those in these Mennonite, village, Mennonite villages that are scattered everywhere who begin to look around at their fellow Mennonites, and they begin to say, in some cases... Uh, you guys aren't actually doing anything to live for Jesus in your life. Like, we're all calling ourselves Christian, and we're all going to church, and we're all going and, uh, and you know, calling ourselves Mennonites and, and putting a lot of trust in that, but there's nothing in your life where you're actually following Jesus, and there's lots of sin going on that is unrepentant, and uh, even the pastors aren't really dealing with this thing. And so they began to meet in homes, and they began to read their Bibles, and they began to say, so what makes a Christian a Christian? And they saw verses like in James, and they saw verses like 1 John 2, 6 that we just read, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. And they began to say, yeah, there's more to being a Christian, obviously, than just being baptized. There's more to being a Christian than calling yourselves a Christian. If you're going to be a Christian, you actually need to be living for Christ. You actually need to be modeling your life around Christ. You actually need to, to the best of your ability and understanding, be trying to follow after Christ. And so they began to gather, and the mainline Mennonite churches didn't like that because they were stopped. They weren't showing up for services anymore. They were having their own services. And so finally, some of these little Bible studies decided to break away and start their own thing. And they had been calling themselves the Brethren because that's a New Testament word, brethren, uh, brothers, or brothers and sisters in the, our new NIV. And they called themselves the brethren. And so if you put two and two together, the Mennonites, who were brethren, became the Mennonite. You see? See how that works? The Mennonite brethren started there. And they were attacked like crazy by fellow Mennonites. And, and they were, you know, you Mennonite brother, you think you're so holy. You think you're so righteous. And you're looking down on us. And don't be so self-righteous. And don't be so judgmental. And this is something that has afflicted the Anabaptist movement uh, throughout, is that uh, other Christians looking at them, uh, and there's lots of different branches of Anabaptism, but looking at them and saying, you guys are so self-righteous. You think you're better than everybody. And a lot of Anabaptists say, we don't think we're better than anyone. We're just trying to follow Jesus, and you can all do what you want, but this is just what we're trying to do. And that being said, in the history of Anabaptism, there's definitely some self-righteousness and definitely some judgmental attitudes. When those Mennonite brethren broke off from the Mennonite church, they wrote a letter, uh, and it basically said, none of you guys are Christians, and we believe the wrath of God is about to fall on you, and so we're going to go start our own thing because we don't want to burn up in the fire. 
So it wasn't the most gracious way it could have been handled. And so there have been those times in Anabaptist history. And, I mean, any time you say to any group, whether it was the Anabaptists breaking off from the Protestants or the Mennonite brethren breaking off from the Mennonites, where you say, we actually don't think you guys are about Jesus enough, so we're going to do our own thing. You're going to be accused of, you know, whatever, passing judgment. And sometimes that judgment was definitely being passed. And sometimes that self-righteousness was definitely there. And so, and the other part of that is when you're so focused on the word and then living out the teachings of Jesus, um, it's very easy to fall into legalism, which is what Jesus accused the Pharisees about all the time. And in legalism, this is what happens when we get the words of God's word right, but we miss the heart of God's word. When we get the text understanding right, but we miss out on love, that's when we fall into legalism. Because then it all just becomes about, let's fulfill words on a page, rather than let's get to know the God who wrote those words and why, and let's figure out how we can love people through this. Colossians uh, 3.14 says, Over all the virtues put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. So for the original Mennonite brethren to say, you know, fire from heaven's about to fall on you pagans, we're starting our own movement. There was a couple of more loving ways, probably, that that could have been expressed. And maybe the most loving way would have been, hey, we're concerned about you guys because we don't see, so let's do this together and let's wrestle through this together. It just, however it could have gone, uh, it was not the most loving way to do that. And so hopefully as we're looking to some of this history, we are able to say, you know what, there are uh, amazing things in our history. There's some not so great things in our history and let's learn from the bad as well as the good so that even as we are following after Jesus and even as we are uh, getting ready to follow after him more and more and even as we are learning and saying we're going to be about Jesus, uh, we're not doing it in a self-righteous way. We're not looking down on anybody else, but we are just saying we are going to do this in a loving and gracious way because to follow after Jesus is to go in the way of love. There's never been anyone more loving. There's never been anyone more patient. There's never been anyone more gracious. And so to follow in the way of Jesus is to choose the loving, gracious, patient way. It's not the fire and brimstone hellfire way. Jesus doesn't talk that way when he walks the earth. It is the loving and gracious way. And so to follow after Jesus, love becomes very important in how we treat other people. And when Jesus came, he didn't say, actually, follow a Bible or follow a philosophy or follow a tradition. Jesus says, follow me. Follow me. And the tradition is helpful in helping us do that. The Bible, we can't do it without doing that. But Jesus says, follow me. Follow my way. Follow my example. We have an email address here at meadowbrookquestions at meadowbrook.ca if you have any questions. I uh, would love to keep the conversation going. I know today was not the lightest message in the world. If you want to keep chatting about it, we can do that. So as we do that here at the church, again, we're not perfect. We don't claim to be perfect. We are uh, sinners. We are broken people. We are forgiven by God. We are loved by him, and we are going hard after Jesus here. We are seeking him out and his example and his ways, and we just invite you to come with us on this journey. We are following after Jesus, and we want to know him better. And so we put our time there. We put our programs there, and it's all there to help us do this together because we can't do this on our own. We need a church family. We need to do this as a group. Uh, so we are seeking after Jesus, and we want you to come with us. And if this isn't the right church for you, if you're checking us out, we want you somewhere, and we will be happy to help you find a church that fits for you. Um, but here we are just who we are. We are an Anabaptist Mennonite Brethren Church that loves Jesus. We love worshiping him. We trust in him. We have put all of our faith in him for our salvation, and we are doing our best to follow after him to the best that we can. We want to worship him a bit more before we go, so I'll ask you to stand to your feet, and we'll close in a few minutes. 
worship team was picking their songs. They didn't know specifically what I was preaching on. I just said, ah, Jesus-centered anything will be good as we go through this series. And that was just such a great chorus to end on uh, with what we're talking about today. And and really, that's, that's it. We can talk about it much more than that. But we've decided to follow Jesus, if you're a Christ follower. Following after the way of Jesus. And the invitation is there for anybody. Come and follow with us. And if you're not sure about that, we can chat about it. And by all means, don't take my word for it. Go and look. Read the Gospels. Read especially the Gospel of John. See the teaching of Jesus. See his example. Decide for yourself if that is the way to follow. But that is where we are going as a church. We are running after Jesus. And so we want to pray. I'll be hanging out here if anyone needs to chat afterwards. Ladies, uh, 18 and older, not for just moms, but all ladies. If you're an adult woman, grab a present on your way out. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And James, uh, man, does he challenge us. And uh, thank you for the balance that he is in the New Testament and how he uh, keeps us from just becoming self-centered, lazy, uh, uninvolved, disconnected Christians, Lord. But he calls us to put that faith into action as we follow after the teachings and the example of Jesus. So, Lord, help us to do that more. Thank you for your grace when we don't do that perfectly, uh, that your grace is sufficient, that you help us to get up and keep at it again. And help us, Lord, more and more to find your footsteps, to find your way, to speak like you, to act like you, to love like you to be more like Jesus every day, Lord, and turn us more into the image of your Son as we do so. Transform us, Lord. Make this a part of who we are as we follow after you, as we worship you, as we trust you, but as we follow after you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Happy Mother's Day. God bless you, moms. Everyone else, God bless you as well. We'll see you next Sunday.